Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. If you like today's show, please consider sharing us with your friends. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's episode. Professor Steve Gillen had a unique relationship with John F. Kennedy Jr. Gillen was his professor, his sounding board, and his really close friend. John couldn't have chose a better friend. Professor Gillen is one of the greatest historians in the country and one of the smartest, nicest, and gifted storytellers I've ever met. In today's episode, we talk about the country's most famous first son, why he was a reluctant prince, and how he finally discovered his core values and his authentic leadership style. I hope you'll enjoy today's conversation with my new friend, Professor Steve Gillen. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm dying to jump right in. So I'm just going to start firing away and asking some questions. Sound good? Sounds great. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right. Is this a true story? And will you please fill in the gaps? A long time ago, you were a young teaching assistant at Brown University. Uh, you're working for a pretty- I know where this is going. Yeah. You're working for a pretty famous faculty member- uh, you didn't want to let him down. He asked you to give a history lecture. Fill in the gaps. I find this to be an amazing story. So, so backstory. So I grew up in a working class family outside Philadelphia. I worked my way through college in my first year of grad school making toilet paper. Worked at Scott Paper Company. You may know my work. <laughs> um, <laughs> we all do. And, we can't uh, live without you. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, so uh, going to Brown was a big thing for me to sort of and I um, got assigned to, a, to be a teaching assistant in a class by this professor, James T. Patterson, who was very demanding. And I wanted Patterson to be my dissertation director. So I really wanted to impress him. And so before the class began, he asked us all if we wanted to give a lecture. And I said, you know, I'll give a lecture on the Kennedy administration. And I knew John was on campus, but I never imagined that he would take a class in modern American political history, right? This right. is John Kennedy Jr., by the way, we're talking about. He shows up for class, and then I'm like, I'm, I'm just, it would be the first time I've ever spoken in public. I'm speaking in front of 100 or so really bright, young undergraduates. I have this professor in front of me who I need to impress, and I'm giving a lecture about a guy and his son is going to be sitting right in front of me. So the day the class starts, right, and, and it's like maybe 30 seconds to 11 a.m., which is when the class began, and I look around, and John's not there, and I think that takes a little bit of the pressure off. Of course, just as I'm about to start, the back door swings open. Here comes John sauntering in, comes right up, and he sits five feet in front of me. Oh, my God. So my career as a professor began like this. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, um. And the thing is, I had the lecture written out in front of me, right there. So, but I had it memorized. I wanted to do it from memory. I'm like, okay, just look down, just look down. By this point, I'm hyperventilating. You know, some people, when they, they're in a difficult situation, they reach down, they have that well of strength they tap into and they can lift cars. I'm not one of those people. I <laughs> hyperventilate. So I'm like, I the paper is just blurring on me. Like I have to say something. It's either blurt something out or go back and make toilet paper. Um, President Kennedy, President Kennedy, President Kennedy had no moral scruples. Oh now, my I have God. No idea where that came from. It <laughs> wasn't what I believed. It wasn't, wasn't what the lecture was about. It's certainly not what I believe now, but that's what blurted out. And I, as soon as I said it, 
I looked at John and he's like looking up at me like this, but there was a, a female student in the back of the room who couldn't see how nervous I was. And she thought it was a joke. So she started laughing and the whole class erupted in laughter, thinking it was a big joke. Oh, God. And, and it broke the ice. I went on, I gave the lecture, which was, you know, somewhat critical of his father, complimentary in some ways, critical in other ways. And after the lecture, he came up and he shook my hand. He said, you know, nice, uh, great lecture. Thanks. But he so but he came up to you after class and he shook your hand. He said, nice, right, he did. nice lecture. He did. How did that make yeah. you feel? I felt good about it because it really was a fair-minded lecture. Like I, I was not giving this this lecture uh, to John. Mm. I wasn't playing to him at all. I was giving a lecture. I would still give it today. I think it's it hold it held up pretty well, and mm. it said a lot to me about him mm -hmm. that he was willing to sit there and take criticism of, of his father mm. and respond to it in a constructive and positive way. So what happened is uh, I'm an old uh, baseball player, and I used to work out with the baseball team at Brown. John was playing rugby, and they had a varsity weight room uh, that we both had access to because we were connected to you know varsity teams. So uh, I always work out. At, I used to work out at three o'clock every day because that was a day we'd always go to baseball practice. So I'm in the in that gym, and John's there, mm -hmm. and he we're the only two in this little gym working out. And we would start it out just like talking to each other. And then he would ask me, he asked me to spot for him. And then next day, you know, we're working out together. And then one night I'm in the Rockefeller library uh, and John comes sauntering up to me and he, goes, he calls Stevie. He's the only person on the planet who calls me Stevie. And he's like, Stevie, you know, we have to get some, we have to get a, a really good workout. We have to get a cardio workout. And uh, all Brown has is squash courts. And I won't tell you what he, how he described people who play squash. But <laughs> he said, let's find a place that has racquetball courts. So we found a place in Seekonk, Massachusetts, which is about a 15-minute drive from the Brown campus. Mm -hmm. And his senior year, you know, sometimes once a week, sometimes twice a week, uh, we would hop in his car and go there. And we'd have these, uh, we'd work out really hard and then have these brutal, intense games of racquetball, which sort of gave me a sense of what the touch football games were like in Hyannis because they were pretty, they were pretty brutal. And John was a little bigger than me. So I got, I got bounced around a lot. Um, and that's when I really got to know him. A lot of times when we, when we finished, we go and have dinner together. Of course he never had any money. So I was buying all the time. Um, Why didn't he have any money? He never did. Really? There's something about Kennedy's and cash. They don't carry it. <laughs> so you were taking him out. You were taking him out to dinner after your workouts, and yeah. what, what was he like as a person back then? The thing about John, someone once said that he was the John was disgustingly normal, hmm. and he really was. Uh, he was incredibly down to earth, uh, funny as hell, uh, friendly, um, treated everybody with respect, even when people, you know, didn't always treat him with respect. Mm -hmm. um, but he said something to me once that really sort of opened my mind to who he was. He said to me, you know, I'm really two people. Mm. He said, I'm just John, but I have I play, I play a role. And that role is John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr., the son of a beloved president. Mm. And it gave me a lot of insight into him, you know, why he enjoyed acting. He'd been acting his whole life. Mm -hmm. So he had this split personality and he kept them separate, built a wall between the two. Because mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that John spent most of his life doing um, was trying to discover his own identity separate from that of his famous family.
is it hard, to, I mean, is it hard to discover your authentic identity and style when you are living kind of two different lives? One is JFK Jr. and one is, you know, disgustingly normal, John. Yeah, but I think John kept the, he always understood that John F. Kennedy Jr. was a role that he was playing. And while he was playing that role and understood why he needed to play it and 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 was happy to do it uh, most of the time, um, he was also trying to figure out who he was. Like, does he want to go into politics or does he want to go into journalism? Does he, you know, want to become, run a corporation? Does he want to be a CEO? Like, what is it that he really wants to do? Mm -hmm. And the one thing he would always said is, I don't want to do what people expect me to do. Uh, and what everyone expected him to do was to run for office, elective office. And he just, he had lots of opportunities to do it. He kept uh, refusing to do it. And, and, you know, I met John in 81 and I, you know, I talked to him two days before he died in 1999. And the process I saw playing out was John over time becoming increasingly comfortable, assuming a more public role. And there were certain moments at one time, it was a, bitter cold day and we were at the New York Athletic Club and John had spent the day in Harlem and he was on an ice skating ring and with a, a bunch of young African-American kids mm -hmm. and uh, he was describing it to me and funny thing is the picture was in the paper the next day of John skating on the ice and all these young kids holding on to him and we're sitting there that night uh, after working out having dinner at the, at the athletic club and, and he said to me um, the fact that you know what people really need, he was talking about that day. He said, what these kids need and what people need is hope. They need to believe that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And he said, I can do that. I can give people that hope. Mm. And that was the first time I heard him, the wall was breaking down, mm. you know, and he was recognizing that on his own, through his own process. And, you know, John was a big fan of therapy. John was in therapy his entire life. And that, that helped him a lot. John was a great guy to to talk to about issues or problems because he clearly had thought through a lot of things and he was gave great advice. Mm -hmm. um, but John, you know, was over time realizing that that was his calling, that he was going to win the politics. You know, he told me another story. It gives you an idea. You talk about the pressure, right, that's imposed on him. Um, so he told me the story in 1968, his uncle, Robert, um, U.S. Senator from New York at the time, former Attorney General, um, is running for the Democratic nomination against Lyndon Johnson. And when he was in New York, he would come by and tuck John and Caroline in mm -hmm. to bed, whatever he could. So one night he comes by and John, it must have been right after Christmas, but John had an easy bake oven. Remember those little things that the yeah, little light bulb when you bake a little cake and stuff. So John's on the floor and he's playing with his easy bake oven. And Robert came it in. His and or Caroline's? Day. His. Okay. Yeah, John had an easy bake oven. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, Robert sat down next to him and was like, said, you know, so John, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And John said, I want to be a baker. <laughs> and he, he told me this story about John, uh, Robert grabbed him by the shoulders and gently shook him and said, you're a Kennedy. You've been given enormous priv privileges. You have a responsibility to help other people. You can't just become a baker. Uh, so when, when he died, okay. And that week between the time he died and the memorial service on a Friday. And I, all the time I had been with John was just usually the two of us. Mm -hmm. So I knew who his other friends were, but I didn't know whether they knew me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and I, there was a meeting that first Monday night and I'm petrified to go, because I, I'm going to 
Yeah, I'm going to go there. I think security is going to turn me away. No one's going to know who I am because I never, you know, interacted with with his other friends. And I knocked on the door, and the door opens up, and this guy answers. And I said, "Hi, I'm Steve Dillon." And he makes this motion with his hand like a racquetball, and he goes, "The professor." <laughs> and that's the way John described me to his friend. So we didn't spend. I tell you that story because th that was the role I played in John's life. You know, I was the guy we who he talked to about politics about history, you know, about, uh, about, you know, things that he cared about intellectually. Uh, I didn't know that much about him. You know, I knew about him when he was the president's son, but after the assassination, I didn't know anything about him until I met him. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I knew he was famous, but I didn't know, I couldn't tell you anything about him. Mm -hmm. And we're it brown and there are people like in the library, you know, they're essentially doing research papers on John, trying to find out what he liked so they could be his friend. And, um, you know, when, if, when you meet someone, when I meet someone, I get to tell them who I am. Mm. And I wanted to, I didn't want to deny John that opportunity. I wanted John to tell me who he was. I didn't want to read about, so I didn't know where he went to high school. I didn't know really anything about him until he went to Brown. So everything I knew about John were things that he told me. And I just didn't pay attention to any other stuff. When your last name is Kennedy, is leadership something, you know, a skill that you're born with? Or do you still have to learn that skill over time? That's a great question. I think John certainly had uh, the soft skills, you know, were just a part of his DNA. And I'll tell you one story. We, uh, when we were at Brown, John used to like boxing. Um, and this is back in the day that if you wanted to watch a boxing match, you had to go to uh, a bar or something and they'd have HBO, they'd have the big screen. And John found this bar in South Providence in a, a sort of a, a poor uh, Puerto Rican neighborhood. Uh, very, I don't think any, John was probably the first uh, student from Brown to ever go to this, to this area. So we walk in and, you know, I realize it's going to be a long night because on the wall, there's a picture of Jesus Christ and John's dad. So, okay. This is going to be an interesting night, right? Yeah. So, Standing there, and John's standing behind me, and we're watching the fight. And I noticed the crowd was parting in front of me. And this little guy, I swear he looked like Danny DeVito. <laughs> he came up and he pushed me out of the way and he looked up at John. He looked in John's eyes. He says, You're John. You're John. And John always was uncomfortable, though, you know, in those moments. He looked around. He was, Yes, I'm John. And the guy hugged him. I loved your dad. He said, I loved your dad. And John said, Oh, thanks, man. You know, I really appreciate that. Thanks. And the guy said, Free drinks. John got a free drink. I had to pay for mine. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, so we go back and we're standing there. Uh, we didn't really sit and talk about it. And then same thing's happening. The crowd is parting and there's Danny DeVito dragging along this woman who clearly had been sleeping. And he says, uh, Marilyn, I want you to meet my good friend, John Kennedy. And John reaches out and says, hi, Marilyn. I've heard so much about you. I'm glad I finally got to meet you. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you have to explain that one to me. So I, I didn't say anything. We get up to the car and I said, right, wait, before you turn the car on, deconstruct what just happened in there. And he said, it's obvious, you know, the guy lives up, you know, he owns the bar. He lives above the bar. His wife is up there. He told her that he was friends with my family. So what's wrong? I made two people really happy tonight. What's wrong with that? And I was like, okay, you got it. You got that gene. And John had that ability you know, when it comes to leadership, there's so many, there's lots of other skills. John had a really high emotional intelligence. Um, he could 
read people. He could read a room, you know, something that like Bill Clinton had the same thing, that really high emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. When it comes to other things that are important leadership, um, you know, just raw intelligence obviously is important. Yeah. John had that to an extent. Uh, what do you mean to an extent? Well, he was John. John um, had a really short attention span. And if he was bored, you would know it because you just see his eyes he just fade away somewhere. Mm -hmm. But I think that was that would have been, you know, people I could ask, you know, what if John had lived? Would he become president someday? And as an historian, there's lots of obstacles that, you know, it was just. The part of the, the this is the challenge that John would have faced had he gone into politics. People would have compared him to his father, mm -hmm. and you know John never lived in Massachusetts. John didn't have John was raised in New York. Um, he didn't have a uh, you know he didn't have the same accent that his father had. Um, he didn't have he just didn't have the same. Uh, his dad was a brilliant speaker. And Don't you think that, you know going back to an earlier point? You know there was two Johns. One was what the public expected him to be. And the other was, you know, this authentic John that he was trying to discover for himself. So had he been able to really hone in on that authentic style, do you think he would have still been compared to his father quite a bit? Definitely. His name was John F. Kennedy Jr. And, you know, the reason why people knew him was because he was because of his father and his mother. So I think that comparison would always, but the media would make the comparison, public would make that comparison. And I don't think John would fare well. I mean, his father became a myth, obviously, after he died. And you can't compare anyone to a myth. But so um, is, that, is that a good thing or a bad thing then to have that name? Because well, I mean, you know, I his mom, the same thing for, you know, the Obamas or the Trumps or, yeah. you know, anyone with the famous last name. Yeah. Well, you know, his mom regretted naming him after his father, mm. uh, after you know, years later, she regretted it because she placed such a burden on him. Um, and John wanted to have a child with Carolyn. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was determined not to name him after himself. He was named Flynn. His son was going to be named Flynn Kennedy. Not Steve? Not Steve, no. Flynn. Um, Flynn, that's a cool And uh, so, you know, John saw it as a blessing and a curse. You know, he told a story like one time this, uh, his secretary, his assistant, not his secretary, his assistant, executive assistant, Rose. Uh, we, made both a love, we both love. Yes, love Rosie. So the reason, so John called her Rosie and me Stevie. So Rose and I call each, I call her Rosie and she calls me Stevie. So it's like a, a layover from, from the old days. And John um, called you Stevie too, right? And John called you Stevie. Well, Rosie called me Stevie because John did. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So John called her Rosie, so I started calling her Rosie. Okay. And John called me Stevie, so she calls me Stevie. That's how we sort of got that. Um, but she tells the story about how she, one time she made a reservation for John at a hotel and used a fake name. Uh, John called and said, Rosie, you know, why didn't you use my real name? And... She said, well, I just didn't think you'd want all the bother, you know, and, and John said, well, you know, I kind of like the bottle of champagne, the flowers, the upgrade, you know, I, that's kind of nice. I'm sure I don't get if they don't know it's me. So John, you know, John knew the benefits, it provided him with great opportunity. He was very much aware of that, but it also took a personal toll on him. In the comparison, you can never really run from that and like developing that your own authentic self and really conveying that to the world is must not be easy but it's something that's absolutely necessary right and john 
I think John, because he waited so long, you know, he thought that his cousins got into politics too quickly, that they they sort of caved into public pressure and family pressure to get into politics. And he just was determined not to do that. He was determined to kind of, you know, figure himself out. Um, and the tragedy, you know, one of the one one of the many layers of tragedy about his death is he had just figured it out. Mm. He was just ready. He had finally gotten to that point where he was looking to make a move, but it was a difficult, a really difficult time for him. And that was something until I wrote the book, I didn't realize how bad that last year was. I mean, I saw him a couple of times. You know, I talked to him that for some reason, that last week I spoke to him the Friday before he died, the Sunday and the Tuesday. Mm. Um, and that's a part of John's you know, character is that you would never have known it. But mm. he was under, he was just really going through a really difficult time. Well, he was going through, year. yeah, he was going through a difficult time and he was in a lot of therapy, which I didn't know. And I'm really yeah. happy to hear Since that. Since he was a child. Yeah. And, and I know you're not a psychologist, but you're a great researcher. And I know you've spoken to a lot of world-class psychologists as you know, you've done research on these books. I mean, what impact do you think his dad's death had on him? Didn't he suffer some other major losses at roughly the same time, like a good friend? And, you know, yeah. obviously his mother was in mourning and not probably not emotionally available. And then it's yeah. played out over and over in the media. You can't escape your own father's yeah. death. I mean, how did that impact his identity and well-being? Yeah, well, that was one thing I wanted to discover. The one thing is about John, he was a risk taker. You know, I, I've driven in cars with John and it's a scary experience. Um, uh, I remember one time we were at Brown, we were going to a movie theater. It's one of these, the, one of the first big, you know, multiplexes and there's traffic everywhere and our movie was starting in like five minutes. So John just drove up on the sidewalk. <laughs> and this is like right in the heart of Rhode Island and he's driving up. Yeah, the... right. Yeah. Just like drives up on the sidewalk and pulls in the spot, gets out and doesn't make anything <laughs> of it. I remember going down, I think it was Fifth Avenue with him. And I'm like, John, come on. I'm like holding on like, John, come on. So, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. What kind of car was it? Um, he had a Honda. Hmm. Um, I thought you were going to say a Porsche or something. No, like no, not no, not at all. No, John but he was, drove it pretty fast, or what, what? He drove it fast. He drove it recklessly. Um, so that's one of the questions I wanted to explore in when I wrote this book. Is like, you know, is there something about uh, his life that that led him to be risk, a risk taker, mm -hmm. which is obviously how he dies. He dies because he took a risk in taking his plane up when he should not have taken it up, when most people would not have taken it up, but he did. Mm -hmm. So I, I talked to a, a child psychologist at Columbia, and what she explained to was really kind of fascinating is that it's not just a single act of trauma, it's repetitive trauma mm. that has an impact. And you look at John, you know, John, um, his dad dies at the age of three. Robert becomes a surrogate father for him. And Robert's assassinated in 1968. And then, you know, his mom marries Aristotle Onassis. I don't think I didn't, I, John was really close to Aristotle Onassis. He really liked Aristotle a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that was also traumatic for him when he died. Um, so so it, the way she explained to me is that people who suffer that type of trauma for some strange reason are drawn to danger. Mm -hmm. It's like a moth to a flame. It's just his, his, desire to put himself in dangerous situations to put him, you know, create this contraption, like a, you know, like a, a, a little heart with a, a parachute on the back and buzz around the sky, you know, yeah. uh, 300 feet in the air. 
was, I think a lot of that goes back to the trauma he uh, suffered as a child. And that's not my theory. It's a theory from a psychologist. But, but it makes sense. And I, I could also imagine, you know, the fact that he was so restless and was always moving around and it's hard to sit still. And I could imagine just sitting still and being alone and reflecting in a sense, it, it would cause a lot of pain. And therefore, you probably would want to continue to con move around as much as you could. I mean, it made sense to me. Um, and, you know, it was something it helped me to understand him in a way I did not understand him when he was alive. Yeah. Um, and, and what was his relationship like? You know, I know he didn't have much of one with his father, but what was it like? And, you know, a lot of young boys spend a lifetime trying to impress their fathers. Was this the case with John? John was, uh, John turned three years old on the day of the funeral. You know, the day that President Kennedy was buried was John's third birthday. But he, what he said to me is that it was hard for him to separate the photographs that he's seen mm -hmm. of his father from his own memories of his father. They kind of blur. Um, the one thing he did tell me uh, was, you know, the famous picture of John under the desk, playing under the desk in the, yes. in the uh, Oval Office. Yep. Well, what he told me, the reason why he's under the desk is that his mom would not allow him to have candy anywhere in the White House. But if he went down to the Oval Office, his father would always give him a stick of gum. Uh, and John would hide under the desk and chew the gum. And uh, that's why he was under the desk. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm glad he had some stories like that. You know, the, the, the thing that's fascinating about JFK, which makes him different, which makes the the assassination so tragic is like he's really someone who's evolving and changing. I mean, the President Kennedy goes to Dallas in November of 1963 is not the same President Kennedy who took the oath of office um, in January of 1961. In what he way? Had well, he had a remarkable capacity for growth. Hmm. So he came to office with a lot of these assumptions. And these were difficult times. You take race, for example, and civil rights. Uh, you know, Kennedy just wanted to keep civil rights on the back burner. The Democratic Party, the South was the, the electoral uh, foundation of the Democratic Party. They're all segregationists, believed in Jim Crow, supported Jim Crow, enforced Jim Crow. And Kennedy had no, he, had, he won it by a narrow victory in 1960. He had no intention of taking them on. Um, and he tried to kick the can down the road. And what happens is he comes to realize that that. He, you know, he becomes the first president to refer to civil rights as a moral issue. Yeah. Famous speech, June 11th, 1963. You can find it on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he decides that day when George Wallace stands in the schoolhouse door and says he's not going to segregate um, the uh, University of Alabama. Uh, Kennedy says, that's it. You know, I'm tired of appeasing these people. And he has Ted Sorensen write a speech. The speech isn't even finished yet. And he goes on national television. He gives the speech. He ad libs the last part of the speech. Wow. But he says civil rights is a moral cause. And he sends what would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to Congress. So there is a complete change. The Cuban Missile Crisis made him realize that uh, the, the, uh, the limits of the Cold War and this whole policy of, of uh, the nuclear arms race with the Soviets. And he begins, you know, he calls for um, essentially the beginning of detente. Uh, with the Soviet Union. And even in his personal life, you know, the, the death of their son, Patrick, mm -hmm. uh, in August of 1963, brings 
the president, Jack and Jackie closer together. Um, he still strays, but you know, he's taking better care of his health. He's doing exercises. He's weaning himself off the medication that, you know, Dr. Feelgood was giving him. Yeah. Um, and there were people noticed a uh, intimacy in his relationship with his wife that, that they had not seen before. So he's, really evolving and changing as a person. And that was his greatest gift. His greatest gift was that he was smart. He was articulate. He had a, uh, uh, you know, remarkable intellect, but he also had a capacity for change. He recognized when he was wrong and he grew in office more so than most presidents. All presidents grow in office to some extent. Kennedy was only there for a thousand days and he grew enormously in those thousand days, which is why, you know, we always wonder what would have happened had he lived. How would, it, where would that growth have taken him? Is that important for a president to have that, not only the intellectual uh, curiosity and to a certain extent charisma, but the, you know, emotional intelligence to know um, when you're wrong and to admit that and to grow from it? Or like, should, should we want to elect people into office that have it all figured out and that have the answers and make us feel good and that almost, you know, have this omniscient attitude when they come into office. Well, the irony is when people campaign for office, that's what we want to hear. Hmm. The, the, that, they know, that they have all the answers. Yeah, they have all the answers. That's the way you campaign. Like Kennedy campaigned in 1960, the missile gap, and, you know, to get the country moving again. And, uh, and you have to present that sense of certainty. Mm -hmm. But you know, but then once you're in office, you have to recognize that the world is a lot more complicated than it was on the campaign trail. Hmm. Um, so so are, I think, are we evaluating potential presidents the right way? Because no. there's no way anybody's going to have all the answers in a complex, fast moving world yeah. or country. So, like, why do we want that when they're campaigning? Well, we always have. Um, I think it's what's different now. Um I mean, a couple things are are different. Um, you know, our, the parties are different now. You know, I always go back to the 1960s and the way we nominate candidates. You know, before before 1968, for the most part, candidates for presidency were were chosen by a handful of party bosses. They literally would sit in a smoke-filled room and decide who their nominee was going to be. There are very few primaries. And the primaries they did had did not elect all the candidates, all the, the delegates for the for the thing. So, you know, party bosses chose them. Mm -hmm. Party bosses chose Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. uh, party bosses chose Truman. Mm -hmm. um, party bosses, you know, uh, chose Eisenhower. Uh, Kennedy sort of did an end round or, around the system in 1960. But still, what happens in 1968 when when, you know, Hubert Humphrey wins the Democratic nomination? without running in a single primary. And he does it because Johnson controls the party and Johnson throws all the delegates toward Hubert Humphrey. So yeah. there's this big reaction. We have to do away with this system. So we came up with a system of open primaries, which is the world that we've all lived in now, yeah. where every state has a caucus or a primary. I think in 1968, there were probably 16, 17, 18 primaries. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, but the, and the, the idea was what's better for democracy than more democracy? Mm. Why should a handful of party bosses choose our nominee when it should be the people, should but... be the Democrats and Republicans? What they failed to anticipate, uh, realize was that the people who turn out in primaries are not representative of the, of 
even the party, never mind the nation. Mm -hmm. So especially with the Republican Party, it has pulled the Republican Party far to the right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Democratic Party has held on to kind of left of center mm -hmm. um, position, but it's really impacted the Republican Party. And so I think what the, the challenge of our primaries now, the, the way we choose presidents, mm -hmm. is the ones that are the most ideological, mm. especially on, on the right, are the ones who are most likely to get the nomination. Well, why especially on the right? Because they're, uh, that's where all the energy is in, in, in the Republican Party. The energy, you know, I mean, liberals are the, the dominant force in the Democratic Party. They're the ones who raise money. They're the ones that turn out on primary days. They're the people who make phone calls, drive the buses to get people to the polls. And the conservative side, it's it's really the uh, the Christian fundamentalist wing of the Republican Party that is the one that 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 exercises an enormous influence in the primaries. Uh, that's why you see, you know, and and even now running for you know whether it be senator or Congress. No one wants to be primaried, and, and the Republican Party are always going to be primary from the right. The mm. Democratic Party are always going to be primary from the left. Mm. You know, and, and then I think about the debates, and, you know, that's someone's ability to look good and sound good on TV and 30-second sound bites. I mean, is that an appropriate way for us to make decisions about who we want to lead the free world? No. Well, that's the way JFK, you know, I mean, JFK ran on a thing called the missile gap, which wasn't true. It's kind of made he made it up. Um, but it was a way of, you know, winning the election. Even the debate, you know, the famous Nixon Kennedy debates, um, they weren't supposed to wear makeup. JFK was wearing makeup. Uh none of us knew that until Ted Kennedy wrote his memoirs. Yeah. And he talked about they were in the back room in the green room and they put some powder on, on and Jack. People, and people that listened to it on the radio thought Nixon won, or at least tied. Yeah, that's right. Nixon did better with people who uh, listened to it on the radio. And there was, you know, it was really the first debate that formed all the opinion. There were, there were six debates, I think, mm. but no one remembers the, the rest of the debates. It was just that first debate because Kennedy, he looked, it was all about image. You know, he looked presidential. And what about Clinton that you have spent time with? What, what was, uh, what was he like as a leader? What was his style? And so Clinton, you have to, you know, you have to always contextualize these presidents and, and Clinton, um, is uh, he he wins election in 1992, uh, the first Democrat since Jimmy Carter in 1976. Hmm. Um, he runs as a moderate. He runs as a centrist, um, um, and he talks about you know welfare reform and law and order. He he sort of co-ops a lot of these conservative themes mm -hmm. that had worked successfully for Reagan and for Bush in, in 1988. Um, so his leadership style, what you know, he's he lives in the scenes of politics and ideas, um, and that was his greatest strength: is that he was not locked into any sort of rigid ideological framework. But it also was his downfall because people accused him of being slippery, of being, you know, of uh, not being committed to anything. He was. I think he's. I think. He, I think Clinton's. I think Clinton's got a bad rap. I think obviously, as with JFK, you have to. You wonder like why are these people who are so powerful so needy? Hmm. You know why do they need? Like Kennedy said he had to have sex every day or else he get a headache. And uh, the things he did were just, you know, he was having affairs with someone who was having an affair with the head of the mafia. 
when his brother's cracking down on the mafia. Um, he, you know, was having an affair with someone who may have been an East German spy. Hmm. This is while he's president of the United States. Um, and, and of course, it, Clinton had his own issues Monica along those Lewinsky. lines, right? Was yeah, it, it, yeah, with Monica Lewinsky. And, but he was probably also, would you say, one of the uh, smartest in terms of intellectual horsepower and just being able Absolutely. to look at a complex subject and figuring it out from scratch? Absolutely. And he knew policy. He was a policy wonk. He used to drive his staff crazy because he knew more about these topics than he did. I interviewed some Republican, I can't forget his name, Bill Archer. And he said he had a meeting with Clinton one morning and Clinton shows up and his face was red and his nose was kind of swollen. And, and people used to think Clinton didn't drink, hardly drank at all, but he had allergies and he had bad allergies. So Archer went in, he had like eight points hmm. and he's going through the points and it looks like Clinton's dozing off. So he continues and he finishes number eight and Clinton sits up, responds to him point by point in the same order that he raised those points, those, those issues. So as Archer's leaving, he turns to his aide and he says, that's the smartest man I've ever known to occupy the White House. Don't you dare say it, tell anyone I said that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So Clinton had that kind of intellect, you know, and Gingrich was kind of bright too. So people used to love watching, they didn't like watching it, they were horrified. To see these two guys sitting there and getting into all these details of policy. You know, at one point, um, the Republicans uh, picked Dick Army to be Gingrich's chaperone, and Al Gore was Clinton's chaperone. So they were so afraid of the two of them got into a room together, they make all these deals that were politically uh, not viable. So they had, but they had babysitters. <laughs> you know, for me, um, there are certain qualities that a leader has to have. Mm -hmm. Look at the, the, our great presidents. What qualities did they have? And one was integrity. Mm -hmm. You know, they were trustworthy. Uh, didn't mean they didn't tell lies. Roosevelt was uh, known to fib. <laughs> and, um, and, and from your perspective, all the great presidents in history have definitely had both character and integrity. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Intelligence, character. I mean, it, it would be character and integrity, intelligence, Empathy. Let's go back to intelligence. What is? How are we defining intelligence? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the ability to solve problems. Okay. The ability to see a complicated problem, simplify it, and come up with the best solution, realizing that there is no... By the time a, a problem gets to the president, there's no easy solution. Though so the ability to be able to choose something, even though it's not ideal. Yeah, like when Clinton signed the welfare reform bill, he hated it. But he felt he had to, he had to do it. Um, intelligence, yeah. integrity, character. You said empathy. What's what's that? Why is that important? Because you have to. You know, it's like what John said. You have to give people hope, right? Mm -hmm. You have to you have to make people feel. Great story. I'll tell you. When Roosevelt dies, right? So he dies in Warm Springs, Georgia, and his train goes from Warm Springs up to Hyde Park, and all along the way, people were turning out to see the the train with carrying Roosevelt's body. Mm. And I think you're somewhere in Georgia and there's a man standing on the side of the road and he's crying. And uh, someone up to him and said, oh, did you know the president? And he said, no, but he knew me. Mm. That's leadership. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't really inspire people as a president if you don't have empathy. Is that right? True, but I think the problem today is you can have empathy. Mm -hmm. Our media environment is so fractured. 
we live in this post Watergate world, right? Where everyone wants to be the next Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, and you, so we're much more cynical about our leaders. Mm. And that's one of the, the unfortunate legacies of the 60s and 70s is that people lost faith in government. They lost faith in their leaders. It's hard for anyone, no matter how talented they are, to overcome that in, in, ingrained cynicism and skepticism. That's just a part of the way we look at our government now. We don't trust government. I think that part of it is no one wants to be dragged through the mud that you know you're going to be dragged through when you run for elective office. You know, everything is fair game. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, you know, if they run a large corporation, they can probably have a bigger impact in the things they care about mm -hmm. as a CEO than they probably can as a president without dealing with all the, you know, with all the hassle of, of, of being a president and being dumped on every day and having every aspect of your life. And that's the other thing is that, you know, we, we know too much mm. about our presidents in their past. Mm. Um, you know, Kennedy had affairs and he was a good president. Roosevelt, everyone knew that Roosevelt was having an affair while he was in the White House. He did a pretty good job of dealing with the Depression in World War II. I think we care too much. We go searching. We are cynical about our leaders and skeptical, and we go searching for ammunition that, that reinforces our skepticism. Mm. And I think that's that's an environment that's really hard for any one person to break out of. Mm. No, that's well said. Uh, why did why did you uh, decide to start teaching history in the first place many, many years ago? Well, a couple, two reasons. Uh, the one reason is that I had an inspiring professor. I, so I went to, I, I was a lousy student in high school. I graduated in the bottom, I don't know, 10% of my high school class. I got accepted to a place called Widener College on probation. I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. Uh, I'm five foot eight. I was a pitcher. I had a, you know, 70 mile an hour fastball and that's with hurricane force winds at my back, but <laughs> I was delusional, you know, so I thought I was going to be a pitcher. Um, and I, I had this class, I took this class in medieval history and it was like a moment where this happened where I'm sitting in the back of the room, not paying attention, but this one day the professor opened it to discussion and I watched my classmates talking about this material, which I had actually read. Mm. I was like, why can't I think like that? Why can't I express my thoughts the way they are? Like why, I'm, I'm not gonna ever play professional baseball. What am I doing with my life? And I literally, I got out from the class. I went to the gym and I turned in my baseball uniform. I think I went to the library probably for the first time. What I discovered is I had this capacity for learning I never knew existed. So I ended up, you know, graduating at the top of my class, went to Brown for grad school. And I just... Wait, you know, where, just, where else did you go to school? I, I went to Brown. I got my PhD at Brown. Okay. And then where did you teach? So I, I, uh, I was at, I got my PhD at Brown. I went to Yale. I taught at Yale for 10 years, Oxford for three years. And then uh, the president, then president of the University of Oklahoma, a guy named David Bourne, invited me back to set up an honors college at the University of Oklahoma. Okay, I just uh, wanted to make sure I got that on record because I didn't want people to think, you know, you struggled through uh, community college. Oh, no, no, no. I uh, Once I, and the other reason, the other reason that I became a professor is that I have, if I had to work for a living, I'd be dead by the time I was 25. <laughs> so what? I told you about the toilet paper factory, right? My first night on night work. I'm in there, I'm cutting this big roll, you know, and I'm cutting it, I go right into my thumb. Oh, God. Likes my thumb, right? I go to the hospital, they bandage it all up, and I come back, and supervisor's really angry with me, and he says, Gilman, I'm going to put you on a machine that not even you can screw up. Slightly okay. more colorful language. 
So he puts me on a machine where you take a roll of paper and you put it on a pipe and you press a button, the pipe knocks out the core and you pick up the paper and you throw it in a beater. I'm kind of the curious type, right? So I'm leaning over to see how far the pipe came up. Okay. Not to hear, shattered all my front teeth. Oh, man. Oh. Gone in an instant. You know, my tongue's like, what, what's happened? What's happened? This I'm spitting out enamel everywhere. This was um, not the right career for you. So I was like, you know what? I've got to do something other than manual labor. So I've got to, I've got to, and it just turned out that uh, around the same time I was discovering that I had actually had a brain that had gone unused for a long time. And, and I've been incredibly lucky and very fortunate in my career. And so what do you love about teaching history? Jeez, uh, what, what do I not like about it? Mm. Um, you know, part of, part of what's motivated me as a teacher is I think back to that moment I was just describing to you when this one professor changed my life. Mm. And, you know, out of nowhere, a spark went, went on, went up in my eye. And I've spent my entire career trying to find that person. Mm. There's a person whose life you can change. And you found that many, 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 many times. You know, not to the as dramatic as my story, but I think I, you know, my my closest friends are all my former students. Mm. Um, my the student, my first advisee at Yale is my best friend. I was the best man at his wedding, he was the best man at mine. Mm. Um, but there wasn't much of an age difference back then. Mm. But you know, I've formed a bond with a lot of my students um, when I care about them, both, you know, in the classroom and out. Mm -hmm. um, and so history has just been a vehicle for me. I mean, I love the mystery of history. I love, I love storytelling. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I always tell people the history is not about facts. It's about the way you structure facts in order to make an argument. Mm -hmm. So history is really the thread that you create to connect facts together, which is why there's really no... You know, there's there's schools of interpretation. There's different ways of looking at history, but not necessarily a right or a wrong way. You can get particular facts wrong, but there's a lot of you know frame in terms of what you can interpret the past, which is why these laws are being passed in places like Oklahoma that limit. You know, you can't teach anything that would make white people uncomfortable. It just goes against the whole philosophy of my whole philosophy of teaching, which is to challenge people, make them. And this is true on the left and the right. No one wants to be challenged. No one wants to be confronted with ideas that are different from those. That's why I've always taught. You know, I you put different ideas on the table, competing ideas, and let students play with it. And I don't care where they come out, but as long as they grapple with things that that challenge what they originally thought. I love that. And what what piece of advice would you give to a student nowadays that comes, you knocks on your office during office hours and he tells you. You may think I'm crazy, Professor Gillen, but one day I want to be president of the United States. What advice do you give that student? When I first went to Yale, I was 27, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a very senior professor named John Morton Blum, a uh, very well-known uh, historian. And I was kind of fretting about my career, like what I was going to do. And and uh, after Yale, and he stopped me one day on the street and he put his finger on my chest and he said, son, life begins at 30. And I'm like, what are you talking about? My life has no meaning. What do you mean? And I'm I'm a little slow. It took me till I was like 50 to figure out what he meant. <laughs> and what he meant is, you know, when we go, when we go to, we have little choice oftentimes in whether we go to high school and, and whether we go to college, there are certain paths that are well laid out. Once you graduate college, you know, there's there's no clear ladder. You have to sort of choose your own path. And I think, you know, 20s are the years that you 
you learn about yourself by exposing yourself to different circumstances, travel, see the world. If you grew up in a city, move to a rural area. If you live in a rural area, move to a city. Um, you know, if you haven't traveled, travel, not, you know, carnival cruise, but go and see how other people live their lives. And I think it's through that that you understand yourself. That's how you discover yourself and you understand the complexity of the world. You understand, and that's where you develop the sense of empathy that, you know, that there are other people with different lifestyles, different points of view. They're not necessarily right or wrong. It's just, that's the human condition. And I think that that's the advice I would give to anyone, whether they're going to be a president, a CEO, or they're going to be, you know, raised, be, just be stay at home and raise children or, or be a teacher or a social worker, whatever it is they choose to do. Professor, this has been the fastest hour of my week. I so thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being on the show. No, it was great, Jim. I, it was great questions. I, you, you got me thinking about things I, I haven't thought about before, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to keep thinking about them after we sign off here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you'd like to attend and join deep dive discussions, please visit www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, we'll see you next week.